0: My text this Lord's Day is from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. was not a class of people that Christ condemned more severely during his earthly ministry than hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 23, in verses 27 and 28, the Lord Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto a whited sepulchres which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You see, the hypocrite assumes outwardly a role of being just, merciful, and humble toward God and toward others. But inwardly, the hypocrite is insincere, lukewarm, and self-righteous. Perhaps that which is most sobering about this sin is not only its potential to deceive others, but its potential to deceive oneself. When hypocrisy takes root in a person's heart, it brings with it a kind of blindness and self-delusion so that one may think all is well, when really all is not well. Hypocrisy, dear ones, deadens the pangs of conscience, much like Tylenol deadens the the pain of a migraine headache. Hypocrisy can send a man whistling all the way to hell. How does hypocrisy manifest itself in your life and in mine, as Christians even? Well, we can go through the mere motions at times in prayer. We can go through the mere motions of singing the psalms, being more in tune with the melody, caring more about how our voices sound than about the meaning, about the word about our spirit communing with Christ through the Word, we can come to worship and tune the reading of God's Word out. We can tune the minister out because we don't care uh, about what he's saying. It's not a topic we're particularly interested in. You see, we can outwardly profess our love for the brethren as well, but in our hearts, despise and disregard the brethren. We can be a model of moral purity before others, but secretly feed on pornography and every lustful thought. We can receive the forgiveness of sin as a free gift through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us. So, are the manifestations of hypocrisy in our own lives, which we will see more of as we continue through the sermon this Lord's Day. But this Lord's Day, we hear the response of Israel to the covenant lawsuit God brought against her. Rather than falling upon her face, Rather than bowing her knee before the Lord in sincere faith and repentance, Israel rather boasts in the presence of God, offering to the Lord her own hypocritical acts of worship as justification of her own self-righteousness. The Lord, in our text today, removes the mask of Israel's hypocrisy for all to see. The main points of the sermon from the text this Lord's Day are these. First of all, Israel offers a mere show of hypocrisy. Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And secondly, God seeks a sincere display of grace. Chapter 6, verse 8. At first point then, Israel offers to God a mere show of hypocrisy. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 6 read as follows. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? <clears throat> it is as though there is a dialogue going on between God and between His people in Micah chapter six. First, the Lord presents His covenant lawsuit against Israel for her unfaithfulness, and gives even specific examples. Of his unfailing faithfulness on his part to that marriage covenant established with Israel. That we saw last Lord's Day in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Now, Israel seeks to deflect the charges of the Lord by pointing to her own outward observance of various forms of worship. That we see in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And then, the Lord addresses and rebukes his people through his prophet by exposing her mere formalism and her absence of sincere and true religion in chapter 6 verse 8. The question the question asked at the beginning of Micah chapter 6 verse 6 is a great question if asked with sincerity. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? That is precisely, dear ones, the question one should ask before coming into God's presence so as to worship Him. How should I approach God? A very, very important question. What does God require of me that I might worship Him acceptably? Micah 6 7 asked the same question, but in different words. Will the Lord be pleased? And then mentioned several things, but let's just put it this way Will the Lord be pleased with my offering, with my worship, with my sacrifices? Will the Lord be pleased? Here are questions which strike doings at the very heart of worship. How do we know with certainty that God will be pleased with our worship unless He has told us what He wants us to bring into Himself? How do we know He will be pleased? Are we simply making an assumption that He'll be pleased with it? Or do we know with confidence and certainty that He will be pleased because He has told us in His Word? You see, Romans 14.23 says, "...whatsoever..." is not of faith, is sin. If we cannot perform an act of worship or an act of obedience with confidence that God will accept it, that He has authorized it, that it will be pleasing to the Lord, then we ought not to perform it. It's not offered to God in faith. It's offered to God in doubt. Whatever we offer to God by way of worship, dear ones, we must offer according to God's Word and faith. But faith must be exercised not in man's word, not in man's will, but in God's word alone. That is all that we can exercise faith, divine faith in, is in the word of God. Everything else is futile, vain, frail. It is to perform will worship according to God's word. You see, dear ones, if we assume that we may bring to God whatever he has not forbidden in his word, rather than what he has authorized, then why did the Lord not regard the offering of Cain when he brought the fruit of the ground? Nowhere in the word of God do we find that God forbade the offering of the fruit. We know that Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, the word of God tells us, which would indicate that God specifically said to bring an offering of the flock. Cain did not have God's authorization to bring the fruit of the ground, whereas Abel did have God's authorization to bring a firstling from his flock. And even notice in Genesis 4.4 how specific The wording is there. Not only a firstling from his flock, but the fat thereof. That's pretty specific. That had to be something based upon revelation from God to bring the fat unto God. Why did God not receive the offering of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10.1, but rather strike them dead? Because they offered strange fire, the text says, which he had not commanded. Notice the text does not say, because they offered strange fire which he had forbidden. It doesn't say that. It says, strange fire which he had not commanded. And so, we ask the question, how do you know whether the use of uninspired hymns in corporate worship is pleasing or displeasing to the Lord? How do you know whether celebrating Christmas or Easter is pleasing or displeasing to the Lord? Has He told you in His Word that it is pleasing to Him? If He has not, and we would submit to you that God has not authorized in his word the celebration of Christmas or Easter or the singing of uninspired hymns and since he has not we cannot offer that to him for we don't know that that is pleasing unto the Lord our God we cannot offer it in faith but dear ones we don't want to focus all of our attention merely on outward forms outward forms of worship are very very important
1: we cannot
0: violate those. We cannot sin against the Lord by trying to offer to God forms of worship which He has not authorized. But dear ones, let us not forget they are forms. They are means by which we worship God. That which is essential to our faith are the graces which God works within us. His love and faith, His thanksgiving and joy. That is the essence of our faith and our Christianity. Let us not simply focus, therefore, upon mere outward forms as we approach God. For if we only approach with mere outward forms, we will fall into the condemnation of Israel of old, as we shall see. It simply is, if that's the case, it is simply hypocritical worship. It is not sincere and true worship. The Lord Jesus said, to the woman, the Samaritan woman, by the well. In John 4, verses 22 and 23. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The Lord says, we have God's revelation as to how to worship God, and we know what we worship. We worship him according to the truth which he has revealed in his word. But listen to what he says subsequently. But the but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Not just those who worship Him in truth, according to the right forms, but those who worship Him in spirit, from a heart that has been anointed, blessed, touched by the Holy Spirit, that wells up in faith and love and thanksgiving to the Lord. Those are the true worshipers. Not those who worship in one way as opposed to the other, who exclude one or the other, but those who unite through spiritual worship, with the form, the outward meaning that God has ordained in His Word. So you see, dear ones, there is nothing wrong with the questions, back to Micah chapter 6, there is nothing wrong with the questions in and of themselves that are asked in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7. However, these questions, the way that they are formed, the context in which they occur here, the rebuke that the Lord gives in verse 8 would all tend to indicate these questions form Israel's self-justification against the Lord's covenant lawsuit. The Lord charges Israel with unfaithfulness to her marriage covenant. And Israel, in effect, says, unfaithful? Us? What do you expect from us, God? Shall we bring our yearling calves as burnt offerings before Thee? Shall we bring thousands of rams to Thee and include our meal offerings enough with enough oil that would fill a river? Shall we even offer our firstborn as sacrificial offerings for our sin? You see, the, Israel is trying to say, Lord, what do you really want from us? They're making excuses for their sin. They're saying, Lord, you, you, you just expect so much from us. You might as well tell us to bring thousands of rams to you. You might as well tell us to bring all this oil that would fill a river. You can always tell a hypocritical religion or relationship with God because it considers the faith. It considers Christianity. It considers that which God gives to us to bear to be too burdensome. I can't bear it, God. But God says that His commandments are not burdensome, that they are in fact a delight to the child of God. Israel defends herself in effect by saying, How then are we charged to be unfaithful unto thee, Lord Don't all our outward ceremonies and forms of worship demonstrate that we have been a faithful bride? What more could God expect from us? Consider what the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, who is Micah's contemporary, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and following. Very similar kind of language that's used against Israel through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Here the Lord compares spiritually Israel with Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11 The Lord continues through his prophet, To what purpose? is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me. Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hate it. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to, to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. And the problem is, in the following verses, but summarized here, your hands are full of blood. Your hands are full of bloodshed. You are full of sin, and you will not repent. You will not come with the grace in your heart. You will not seek the Lord from the heart. You come simply performing outward ceremonies before me. But your heart is so far. From me. This is the hypocrisy of Israel of old. And dear ones, the Lord, the Lord our God, despises hypocritical lukewarmness not only in Israel, but he des- despises it in his church as well. You remember what he said to the church of Laodicea. I despise, paraphrase, I despise your lukewarmness. I would that you, you, you be hot or cold, but this lukewarmness, this indifference, this apathy, complacency in the things of God, I despise and I will spew you out of my mouth. The Lord despises that lukewarmness not only in His church, but in our families when we run through family worship. When we do not take the time to prepare our hearts to come before God, whether it's secret worship or whether it's family worship. When we are more concerned about the various circumstances and things of life that they preoccupy our minds and we can't separate ourselves for the time of worship to call out to the Lord... When we don't instruct our children in such a way as to impress upon them the necessity of a heart religion with God, a heart relationship, when we don't stress to them how important it is that that they give their whole life to the Lord, that they not withhold anything from Christ, that they offer their lives as living sacrifices unto God, which is just a reasonable service in light of all that God has done. We have fallen, dear ones, into a sinful, detestable indifference in our own lives, in our families, and in our church. We've allowed, oh, uh, dear people of God, we've allowed an indifference indif- to the gracious invitations of Christ. We've tolerated a hypocritical double standard whereby we judge others by a stricter standard than by what we judge ourselves. And this is all nauseating. It's a nauseating lukewarmness to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was this hypocrisy may take different forms in our lives. And I'd like to just mention two forms in which this hypocrisy may take in our lives. First of all, this form of of hypocrisy is that which is associated, the first form is that which is associated with the Romish church. This form of hypocrisy has a zeal but not according to knowledge. Well, you see, dear ones, it is not only members of the Romish church who have their acts of penance, whereby they pay the Lord off so that he won't be angry with them anymore. It's not only Rome that seeks to appease the Most High God with her mere outward ceremonies as if he were a pagan god. Don't we, in various ways, bargain with God as well? trying to buy relief from an aching conscience when we punish ourselves for our sin by reading an extra chapter from the Bible, by praying an extra hour, by fasting an extra day each week or each month, by calling ourselves vile names for our sin, by giving up this habit or that habit, by making this sacrifice or that sacrifice. When we punish ourselves for our sins, and this is the result of how we punish ourselves, we have simply entered into a Protestant penance. That is a form of Romanism in our own lives. It's abominable to the Lord. It is hypocrisy, dear ones. When we perform our good works from a desire to punish ourselves for sin rather than performing our good works from uh, from hearts of faith and love and thanksgiving to God for His great love to us. How do we differ from Rome? Dear ones, all such actions on our part are nothing more than mere penance and paying God off for our guilty conscience. We may not pray the rosary. We may not crawl on our knees up stone steps and kiss an image of a saint. We may not observe Lent and give up meat, but we have fallen into the same hypocrisy as Rome, where we have offered our works to God in exchange for a clear conscience and assurance of forgiveness from sin. We have trusted in our works in some way rather than trusting in the promise Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply taking him at his word. That he will give a clear conscience. That he will purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Consider with me for a moment the liberty that is ours in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 4, we find these words. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. If it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to do so, if it's not possible for the blood of bulls or goats to give you a clear conscience or assurance of your forgiveness of sins, how do you think, or why would you think, that something you can do in and of yourself and that you offer to God is going to accomplish that. Wherefore, when He, that is Christ, cometh into the world, He saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldst not. Neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will, listen closely, by the which will, We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And in verse 14, For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. There is the grounds for a clear conscience. Certainly, our obedience to the Lord, God uses as a means of bringing assurance of salvation. Our obedience out of hearts that are filled with love and thanksgiving. Not obedience in order to pacify God. Not obedience in order to appease God. Not obedience to compensate for our sins or to repay God in some way for our sins. No, no, no. That's Romish. It's abominable in God's sight. There you know, was. I know the sinful tendency that is in the heart of man to appease an angry God by our good works. That's natural religion. That is that which man seeks to do. The pagan religions seek to do so. They seek to accomplish these things in their, in their own way to appease the heathen God. But can't we see that this is an abomination to the Lord? Can't we see that such behavior in effect pours contempt upon the sacrifice of Christ and implies that Christ's death and resurrection is really not enough? It was not sufficient. In so doing, dear ones, we have supplanted the covenant of grace with the covenant of works. And that is one form of hypocrisy into which Israel of old fell. The second form of hypocrisy, which we must avoid at all costs, is like that of so many of the Pharisees who performed their works of religion from no zeal for the Lord, but rather from a desire to receive the applause of men. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 5, concerning the Pharisees, but all their works they do for to be seen of men. In John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, the Lord says this through the inspired writer, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, excommunicated. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Such was the form of hypocrisy that seems to have moved Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 to sell their property and to give it to the church. They were trying to keep up with all the other members of the church who were doing so, selling property, bringing it, laying the the money at the feet of the apostles to, to be able to use, to care for those who were in need. And Ananias and Sapphira didn't want to be left behind in the eyes of others, and so they as well did the same thing, but withheld from the Lord, lied concerning what they had brought unto the Lord, the second form of hypocrisy, dear ones, proceeds from an apathy in the heart for Christ and for the things of the Lord. In this heart, there is an indifference to a close communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an indifference to fervency in prayer, there's an estrangement from the Lord. A lack of desire to spend time with the Lord. The desire isn't even there. It's just apathy. It's just complacency. There is a complacency in this person's heart to love the Lord as he ought. To be broken hearted over his sin that he's committed against Christ. There is in this person's heart a lukewarmness in zeal to defend the least truth for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an uncaring heart for the needs of the brethren in such a person's heart. You see, this is the person who is only looking for the easiest and the most comfortable path to travel in the, in, in the life of being a Christian. Show me that which is broad. Show me that which is comfortable, which is easy. I'll go that path. That's the hypocrite. The acts of worship and obedience in this case are done more from the motive. What will others think if I don't do it? Rather than from the motive, how can I demonstrate my love, my thankfulness for all the many benefits and mercies which God has shown toward me. How can, I just, uh, how can I just tell God? How can I show the Lord how much I appreciate and love all that He's done for me? This is the form of hypocrisy that simply goes through the outward motions of worship and obedience. The form of hypocrisy that is simply there in the body. The body's there, but the spirit's not there. Dear ones, think about a few questions here. Has Thanksgiving, at mealtime, become so rote that it's become vain repetition? You just rush through it. You give very little thought to what you're actually saying. If we want to train our children in a sincere heartfelt religion where their whole heart is devoted to the Lord they need to see that in our lives and even in our giving of thanks at each meal that each meal should be to us a feast whether it's only a morsel or crumb each meal should be a feast which our children know has been given to them by the Lord their God we should communicate that in our whole heart in the way we speak to the Lord before them in prayer How do you listen, as I mentioned earlier, how do you listen to the Word of God as it's read and as it's preached? Do you give any preparation ahead of time before coming into corporate worship, family worship, secret worship? Do you prepare your heart? Do you ask the Holy Spirit to bless the reading of His Word, to cause you to cherish it in your heart and life, to lay it up? in your heart and practice it in your life. <clears throat> Have the outward forms of worship become more important to you than the faith, love, and thanksgiving expressed from the heart by the by the means of these forms. This form of hypocrisy, dear ones, that we're speaking of now, tunes out the Spirit of God who speaks to us by His Word and by His Spirit. Hypocrisy, dear ones, reveals itself so often. This form of hypocrisy reveals itself so often by blaming others for our own spiritual dryness. It's everybody else's fault but my own that I'm spiritually dry and going through a wilderness that I feel so empty. It's everybody else's fault but my own. You see, this is hypocrisy. This is hypocritical religion. If we all have access to the same grace of God, if we all have access to the same Word of God, if we all have access to the same Christ, We cannot blame anyone for our spiritual dryness. It is our fault. It is our own hypocrisy. Well, how shall we see, dear ones, hypocrisy crucified in our lives? Let me give you a few suggestions. How we can see hypocrisy crucified in our lives. First of all, we must embrace Christ as our only hope of eternal salvation, first of all. We must come to Him and acknowledge only He can save our souls and purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We must come to the Lord Jesus Christ alone as our only hope of being sincere in our faith. If Christ doesn't come, if He doesn't give us sincerity of heart, dear ones, we will be hypocrites. Believe me. That's the direction we're inclined by nature. We will be hypocrites if Christ does not come. If he is not the focus, the center of our life, we will not be sincere in our faith. Only he, dear ones, can purge our minds, hearts, and lives from all those hypocritical dead works. He died so as to set you free from hypocrisy. That's one of the sins he died to set you free from. All hypocrisy. It's not something that you have to work for. It's something that Christ has already accomplished on your behalf. Merely accept the grace. Trust him for the grace. Cling to his promise. Secondly, we must draw near to the Lord and enjoy communion with him through fervent prayer. We must be students of His Word if we would be free of hypocrisy. At all times of worship, we must sincerely seek the blessing and the imparting of grace by God's Spirit so that worship does not become a mere ritual. See, that's to profane the name of the Lord. God's name is that by which He makes Himself known. All the means by which He makes Himself known according to the Shorter Catechism. So that we profane the most holy name of God when we approach him in worship and we have not adequately, duly prepared our hearts to receive all the blessings that he offers to us. Worship cannot be carelessly entered into if we would avoid hypocrisy. And to this end, the prayer of David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 should continuously be upon our lips. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thirdly, in order to see hypocrisy crucified in our lives, we must hate hypocrisy as an enemy of God and as an enemy of our soul that would seek to destroy us. We hate it not only for what it will do to us, but we hate it because of its very nature that it is that which causes us to exercise an insincere religion before God, an insincere faith and love, and a, a feigned love to the Lord Jesus Christ. We hate it for the sin of itself, hypocrisy. Not only what it causes or brings about. And in hating hypocrisy, as I said earlier, take full responsibility for your sin. Don't shift blame to others for your own hypocrisy, for your own spiritual dryness. Christ invites all to come to the living water. He doesn't invite some. He invites all to come to the living water. As Nathan said to David, so the Spirit of God says to us, Thou art the man. Fourthly, if we would have hypocrisy crucified in our lives, we must not serve the Lord either from a blind zeal or from a lukewarm heart. We are to grow... And this is the solution to a blind zeal and a lukewarm heart. We are to grow in grace. That takes care of the lukewarm heart. And in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That takes care of the blind zeal. We need to grow in grace and in knowledge. Fifthly, we must not let our right hand know what our left hand is doing when it comes to the praise of others. We must not seek the applause of men. We must not look for the pat on the back. We must do all doings to the glory of Christ and be content with His well done, thou good and faithful servant. We must be content to hear simply from the Lord well done, thou good and faithful servant. If we never hear from anybody else, That was a good job or a job well done. Still, we continue in the strength and the courage of the Lord. And finally, we must not allow the least sin to take root in our lives. Hypocrisy, dear ones, uh, uh, breeds on that... Sin, no matter how small it might be that we simply ignore, neglect refuse to deal with in our lives if we refuse to deal with it hypocrisy will be the result if we are in unfaithful, dear ones if we are unfaithful in little we will also be unfaithful in much if we allow the least sin to just to go and we're not willing to deal with it then greater sins will come which we will also not deal with, a little hypocrisy tolerated in our lives will inevitably lead to a lot of hypocrisy. Second main point, and we'll move much more quickly through this, is this. God seeks a sincere display of grace, not hypocrisy. God seeks a sincere display of grace in the hearts of His people. Micah 6.8 <clears throat> He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord now declares to Israel that it is foolish and hypocritical for her to act as though what God desires in worship is more than he has already revealed to them. Israel acted as though they had done all that they knew to do and that God was just expecting too much of them. In reality, Israel was simply seeking her own self-justification before God. And the prophet Micah answers Israel on behalf of the Lord. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. He's revealed it to thee. Dear ones, hypocrites are willing to offer a portion of their wealth to the service of the church. They are willing to offer external worship according to certain forms. They are willing to make various sacrifices so as to go without food or clothing or shelter, to fast. All these things they are willing to give up so as to be seen by others. But there is one thing a hypocrite is not willing to sacrifice nor willing to give up to God. One thing. He's not willing to give up his whole heart. All of his will, all of his mind, and all of his affections to the Lord. He's not willing to do that. Anything else, but not myself. I won't give myself. To the Lord. Make no mistake about it. Hypocrites are willing to make certain external sacrifices, but they are not willing to give themselves and their Lord Jesus Christ as he commands in Romans 12:1 as living sacrifices. That a hypocrite can do For a hypocrite cannot rise above his mere external religion. A hypocrite cannot offer to the Lord his whole heart. For a hypocrite cannot rise above his mere external religion to a religion of the heart and soul and mind. Well, what has the Lord revealed to be the essence of true religion? He mentions in the remainder of verse 8, Each of these, dear ones, must be viewed as graces supernaturally supplied by the Spirit of God through faith in the living Christ. These are not another set of rules by which we are justified before God, but rather the effect of God's work of grace in the life of a true believer. These are the graces by which the Holy Spirit demonstrates His presence in the heart and life of every true child of God. These graces may not be evident to the same degree in the life of every true child of God. In the lives of some Christians, there, are, there will be uh, a harvest of 30-fold, a harvest of 60-fold in other Christians' life, uh, a harvest of 100-fold. But these graces will be in the hearts and lives of every child of God. Where these graces are missing... In the life of a professing Christian, there will be hypocrisy, deception, and playing a role. Correspondingly, where these fruits of true and sincere religion that are mentioned here flourish in our lives, their hypocrisy will be subdued and conquered. The first grace that is mentioned is to do justly. Justice, dear ones, is that grace to deal fairly, honestly, and sincerely with our neighbor. And I might mention the first two graces that are mentioned, to do justly and to love mercy, are are those graces which are directed toward our neighbor. They are graces which summarize the second table of the Ten Commandments. This grace to do justly is summarized in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, where the Lord says, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's to do justly, one to another. The grace of justice forbids doing all double standards in our lives, measuring one person according to one standard and, and ourselves according to a much lower standard. It forbids all dishonesty in business, prohibits all covenant-breaking, disallows all unlawful insubordination or tyranny, condemns all immorality, lying, stealing, bearing false witness against our neighbor. The grace of justice demonstrates itself by desiring and seeking the peace, purity, and unity of the church. It longs for, justice longs for and prays for righteousness to be manifested in the kingdoms of the world as well as in the church of Christ. For you see, dear ones, justice loves the truth and always seeks unity and peace in the truth. It it buys the truth at all costs, but it will not sell it at any cost. One who is just cannot live, dear ones, in unconfessed sin. One who is walking according to justice cannot live in his unrepentant sin. For the love of Christ constrains him. The love of Christ draws him back to repent and his love for holiness, to see holiness as being so desirable and beautiful, it will not allow him to stay in his sin. The second grace mentioned here is to love mercy. Mercy is that loving kindness which is shown to our brethren and to our neighbor. You see, in showing or loving mercy, as it says here, to love mercy, to love mercy, one cannot exercise personal vengeance. This is incompatible with an unforgiving heart. It is inconsistent with bitterness and resentment. It cannot coexist with personal hatred. It cannot be united with an unwillingness to help others in their time of need. It is completely contrary to an unwillingness to pursue reconciliation for those who are at odds with ourselves. It is absolutely consistent to go as far as we can to pursue reconciliation, to be united as brethren in the truth. To love mercy implies that we fervently pray for those who are without Christ, We weep over divisions in the body of Christ. We are willing to cover all sins that we can in love, knowing that we ourselves are so guilty of so many sins ourselves. Mercy rejoices, dear ones, in the blessings, in the gifts, and in the prosperity of others. Both justice and mercy, dear ones, are shown here to be those desirable qualities that we exercise toward our neighbor evidences of God's grace in the life of one who has true religion the last the last grace that is mentioned is to walk humbly with our god this grace of humility summarizes our duty to god summarizes our duty as it's mentioned in the first table commandments the first four commandments of the 10 commandments the grace of humility dear ones leads us away from our own righteousness our own self-justification and leads us rather to embrace the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to cling to him and Him alone. Humility causes us to see so clearly our own unworthiness before a holy God, that we have nothing that we can bring before God, that we're totally undeserving in every way of the least mercy that God would bestow upon us and show us. Humility boasts not in its own intelligence, in its own giftedness, in its own outward appearance in its riches but boasts only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and what Christ has accomplished in us by His grace. It boasts in those things. Even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10 I am what I am by the grace of God. The most lowly job is not beneath humility to perform in the kingdom of Christ. That which seems most menial is not beneath one who is a humble person. For he does so for the glory of Christ and for the edification of others. Humility puts not his confidence in the arm of flesh or trusts in the resources of man to accomplish the kingdom of Christ to bring about a reformation. Humility puts all confidence in the Lord God alone to accomplish His work here upon the earth in the hearts of men and women and children. For humility recognizes a sovereign God that there is nothing impossible with God. The humble person, dear ones, willingly accepts and submits to every crook in the road as from a caring, loving Heavenly Father. He comes to see. The humble person recognizes he doesn't deserve the least mercy. Therefore, any mercy God shows to him is a blessing. And God is teaching, training, and instructing him through everything that he passes through. The humble person, dear ones, rejoices in suffering and persecution just as the apostles did for they were suffering for the cause of Christ. One who is humble is teachable. He doesn't give the impression that he knows it all. And yet, one who is humble rejoices in the truth and believes that God has revealed himself in the Word of God and he's willing to stand firmly upon the truth of God, even the least truth, the defendant, to the point of blood. One who is humble is thankful to the Lord. His life is characterized by thanksgiving. Not grumbling, complaining against the Lord's providence, but being thankful before the Lord. And this humble man has an example, for humility is personified, dear ones, in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we find in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The Lord humbled himself. He does not call us to do something that he himself was unwilling to do. The Lord can give to us, dear ones, his grace, for he has already conquered all of our enemies. He can bring humility into your life. He can bring, uh, O people of God, that humility which will destroy all hypocrisy in your life. The Lord can accomplish this. He can subdue it. He is our example and He supplies the grace. Christ came, dear ones, to bring us a true religion that exists not only in outward forms, but more importantly, in inward graces. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, Deliver us, O Lord our God, from all hypocrisy. Give to us a holy hatred for hypocrisy in our lives where we in various ways simply go through the motions of our religion. Forgive us, O Lord, for the hypocrisy in our lives where we would seek to bargain with Thee, to offer to Thee our works, in exchange for a clear conscience, not basing a clear conscience and grounding a clear conscience upon the work of Christ. O Lord, our God, have mercy upon us and cause us, O Father, to desire that true, sincere heart religion that manifests itself in justice, in mercy, and in humility. Father, work these things in the life of each individual, in the lives of of the family members, in our church, and in Thy kingdom. We pray, Father, that Thou would accomplish these things for again. We come not to a king who is impotent, but to the Almighty God, the King, to whom nothing is impossible. We call upon Thee, our God, for Christ has subdued all of His and our enemies already. We call upon our prophet, priest, and king to cause us to walk in all the ways of true religion. We ask in His name. Amen.